Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Good morning. I'm going to be reading the scripture for the uh, for today. And as I was preparing, um, this is about fasting. Have have any of you done a fast? Anybody? My show of hands. Um, I don't know if you can do an involuntary fast, but I'm sure through the pandemic, some of us have been fasting from things that we're used to, um, whether it's socialization or travel. Um, so uh, I know this this kind of got me interested, and I'm, I'm excited to know what Andrew has to say about this passage in Mark. So we're reading from Mark chapter 2, um, verses 18 through 22. Um, I'm reading out of the NIV, by the way. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece, of, uh, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jesse. Um, I've already loved just kind of the feel of today. It's been a little different. Um, you know, once a month we have a family Sunday because we... Uh, we value the, the kids being a part of the regular rhythms of our worship service. Um, and I grew up in the church, and um, some churches, basically the way it works is families go in the door, parents go one way, kids go another way, and kids are never a part of the total life of the church. And then we wonder why, when they graduate high school, they never go to church. Their entire life, they've had this kind of segmented um, aspects of their life, including their faith. And so this morning, if you have a wiggly kid next to you, I don't care. I'm not going to be disrupted by it. You might be, so I understand as a parent that can be a challenge. Um, we, we do normally, if this is your first time with us, have kids programming for our kids up through elementary school. Um, but we're glad that we're all together this morning. And, and just the family aspect of it, I mean, from Lavelle uh, and Heidi sharing about their vision for this, this um, house next door, um, to Lavelle's mom, Jane, sharing a story. Um, uh, this is what I love the most about church. It's not a, it's not a meeting where we're watching our clock. Um, it's, it's really a weekly family reunion. So if you're here with us, this is your first Sunday, we want you to feel like you're not crashing the family reunion, that you're welcome to be a part of it this morning. Um, so let me give you a little background on kind of what we've been talking about as a family. We've been looking at the life of Jesus. There's four accounts of Jesus' life. In the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call these gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because gospel means good news. So it's the good news about Jesus. And 
um, we've been uh, examining who Jesus is. And as we've done that, we've kind of asked some questions. One is, who is Jesus? Who did he say he was? What did we learn about his attributes and his character? Now, let's be honest, Mark's account is not detailed in that it describes um, the personality of Jesus or, uh, you know, it's not like he walked into a, a dusty tent and sat down with a smile on his face. It's not that kind of record. Mark really just kind of gives it to us straight about who Jesus is and what he did. But we can learn a lot about what it means to be Christians, followers of Jesus, through this account. And so that's what we've been trying to do. Who is Jesus? And in light of that, if we are Christians, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, then we ask the next question. How do we follow him today? So we're reading an account of his life 2,000 years ago, and the people that followed him literally followed him. They were in his space. They were in his presence. They heard him preach. They saw him do the miracles. So as we approach this, we're asking, well, what about us? How do we today follow Jesus? And then as Christians, Jesus commissions us, commands us to tell others about how to follow him and about his message. And so we're also asking that question. What are we inviting people into? If you've ever shared your faith before or you've ever heard the, a pastor say, you need to invite some people to church. Well, if you don't know what you're inviting them into, then there's not going to be a lot of passion there, is there? Not going to be a lot of desire to do it. So what are we inviting people into? And my hope is as we're walking through the account of Jesus' life, that will become clear to those of us who don't know. And it will become a powerful reminder for those of us that do, that just need to be reminded. So as we look at um, this passage today, uh, Jesse read the first part of our passage. We're going to go a little bit further into the story we um, are going to see Jesus have conflict with people who were doing their best to live a devoted life. The, the word for this is a pious life, like they're, they're all in. And so they're, they're committed to the ways of God, but something is off because they have an issue with Jesus. Now, we don't have a lot of uh, comparison to what was happening in the Jewish culture in Jesus' time and what we experience in our culture. And there's a couple reasons for this. The center of Jewish culture and society was religious, was deeply devoted to God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The synagogue was the center of Jewish life. And it was more than just like a church building. It was a place where people would go and fellowship together, where they would hang out. People were in the synagogue every day of the week. And so out of that, the Jewish life was deeply connected to the promises that God had made to the Jewish people. That's very different than our culture today. Uh, we are, a, I would say, a quasi-religious culture today. We, most folks believe in a God, but how they define that God, how they practice that religion is up for debate because we're postmodern. We live in a postmodern, we live in a very individualistic society. You do you, my truth, your truth. And so our world today is not like Jesus' world. So when Jesus has conflict with the culture, he's actually most often having conflict with the religious culture. At a bigger level, though, um, Jesus is having conflict with the fundamentalism of the culture. 
And I think we can actually relate to this. We live in a, uh, in a very polarized, very opinionated, cancel culture, if you don't agree with me, kind of time. And fundamentalism, we, this word's thrown out a lot. Uh, officially, it means somebody who holds to the fundamentals of a religion. That's not bad, right? Like, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe the church is important. We believe that to follow Jesus, it, it requires faith, and it's an act of grace. Like, these are the fundamentals of the faith. But fundamentalism takes those things and then eventually starts to add things onto them. Um, in fact, so many things that the original intention, the original heart of God gets crowded out. And so we see this in the Jewish religious culture, but we see this in our culture today, too. There is just as much a secular fundamentalism as there is a religious fundamentalism. And you will know when you've encountered a fundamentalist by the way that they react to you if you are disagreeing or living different than they say you ought to live. So we have, maybe you could call it neo-fundamentalism. And it, 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 again, fundamentals in of themselves are not bad things, but when we stretch them to the point where we exclude others, where we, have, we don't listen, we don't involve uh, ourselves in relationship with them because they don't see the environment the same way or politics the same way or whatever it would be, then it's the same issue of religious fundamentalism. It's neo, kind of secular fundamentalism. So while Jesus' culture is a little bit different, I think the big principle is the same. As Jesus enters into these cultural spaces and he does things differently, people react in a way that is often violent, often angry, and that's what we'll see today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are some right in front of you, and I'll give you a shortcut to our passage. It's page 859. Page 859. When I, was a, um, when I was a kid, I remember driving home from church one day, and my mom said, I don't remember what the preacher said, but I sure was blessed. <laughs> and let's be honest, that's true a lot of times with us. My hope this morning is that you wouldn't remember what I said, but that you'd remember what Jesus said. And so I want to pray for that as we unpack God's word this morning. Father, I ask now in this moment, in this little space we've carved out in the busyness of our lives, that you would speak, that we would see who you are clearly in Jesus, your representation on earth, your spirit, Lord God, would it minister to us through these words, that as we look at this ancient text, it would become alive for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so Jesse just read this interaction. Jesus, if you were with us last week, he just had a party with his friends. Um, but not just his friends, with sinners. Don't tell anybody. And tax collectors. So Jesus had just had this party. And uh, verse 18 brings up the problem here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, John being John the Baptist, were fasting. They were not eating food. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? There's an issue here. It's that question. Like when you come out of your, uh, your room and you're about ready to, to start the day and your mom looks at you and she goes, how come you haven't cleaned up your, your clothes yet on your floor? 
Like, it's not really a question. It's an accusation. Like, you know you're in trouble. And so this question is coming to Jesus. And now before we answer the question, we have to ask, what's the deal with fasting? Jesse asked the question before he read the verse, have you ever fasted before? And he mentioned some of us have had to fast from things other than food uh, in this recent season. I'm a huge coffee drinker. Like, I love coffee in the morning. And there is times where I intentionally fast from coffee to make sure I'm not too dependent on it. <laughs> some of you know what I'm talking about. But what Jesus has in mind specifically, or what, what's happening specifically in this culture, is when fasting is mentioned, it's always about food. It's not about Netflix about coffee, about screen time. It's about food. So what's the deal with fasting? Um, the religious culture in this day, there was one day that was prescribed by God to fast. One day from the Old Testament, you'll find it in Leviticus 16, verse 29. And there was this one day was called the Day of Atonement. It was a day where the Jewish people would confess their sins to God and they would refrain from eating on that day as a reminder of that confession. And in a sense, it was like a little bit of self-punishment because, man, I'll tell you what, I feel that every time I don't get a meal in time, right? Oh, my goodness. It's torture. It's hard. And so that's the one day that's commanded. But clearly, there must be other days going on here because it says John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting and Jesus wasn't, and it wasn't the Day of Atonement. Now, there's other times in Scripture where we see fasting happen. It's almost always a time of lament, fasting over sin, fasting over grief. If somebody um, died or if there was some tragedy happening in the culture or the nation, folks would fast. But the Pharisees, and we described the Pharisees last week, they're very religious folks. They have set up all sorts of extra ways to demonstrate their religious devotion. So what they would often do is they would take something that God said to do and they would say, oh, we should do even more than that to show how holy we are. Now, our culture tends to be the other way. We go, oh, what did God say not to do? I'm going to get as close as I can to doing it without doing it. But the religious leaders of the day were the opposite. And so what they did is they created expectations that you wouldn't just fast once a year. That's for, that's for juveniles. That's for rookies. If you really want to show God how much you love him, you will fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And so you can imagine it's a very religious culture, and if you weren't the one fasting, like you went to work that day, everybody's fasting, and you're out there having a cheeseburger, like everybody's going to look at you sideways, like, man, what kind of heathen is this? And so this is the expectation of the culture, that they would fast every day. Now, remember, Jesus and his disciples, they just shared a meal with Levi at his house. And so some of the people were looking at Jesus, and they were wondering, what kind of holy man is this, really? If most devoted religious folks fast like this, what's up with Jesus and his disciples? Now, we already know that something's different about Jesus. He's not just a regular holy man. He's not just a really cool Pharisee. This is God. So Jesus responds to this question with three illustrations that Jesse just read. The first one is the party at a wedding. Party at a wedding. 
And Jesus says that he is the bridegroom. What does he say? You don't not have food when you go to a wedding party. My brother's getting married, actually, in, in just a couple weeks. And we, as part of the wedding, we, on our RSVP, checked what kind of food we want to eat. I'm already looking forward to that. Because it's meat. <laughs> so Jesus is saying, y'all, nobody does that when there's a party, when there's a wedding. You, you get down. You boogie. You have a lot of food together. And what Jesus is doing is when he says this, he's essentially saying, I am the, the bridegroom here. I'm, I'm the one that this wedding is, is focused on. Now, the Pharisees would have known that there in the Old Testament, there was references to God's ultimate redemption being like a wedding party. Isaiah chapter 6 says this. And so what Jesus is doing, just like he had done previously with his interactions, he's saying, God is here. It's time to party. Like, this isn't a time to lament or to fast. Now, he says, if you followed along with what Jesse read, he said, later there will be. He's foreshadowing his death. But right now, it is time to eat, to feast, to party. Now, Jesus gives two other illustrations to indicate that something is happening. His introduction of himself as the bridegroom is his announcement of divinity. But then he says, this is the beginning. Something new is about to happen. Now, for a religious culture, they've been doing the same thing for a long time. They're not going to respond well to this. But Jesus gives two illustrations. And I think we can kind of relate to at least this first one. The first one is patched clothing. I have memories of a kid. For some reason, the, the holes in my knees wore out super fast. I mean, within a few days of those new jeans, there was holes in my jeans. So my mom was an expert patcher. Uh, I think she used iron-on patches back then, so it's a little different than Jesus' time. But how many of you have, like, your favorite shirt? Like, you've, maybe you've had it for, for 20 years. I have a T-shirt that I've had for probably close to that long. My wife's nodding in agreement. She's tried to get me to get rid of it. And one day you're wearing this shirt, and you snag it on something, and it just rips a big hole in the side. You have two choices, right? One is to get rid of it, which I think my wife would appreciate me doing. The other is to figure out a way to patch it. But here's the thing, that shirt used to be bigger. And over the years, not, you know, there's various reasons why shirts get smaller. We won't get into that. But it has is, it is shrunk a little bit over the years for all, from all the washings. So if you put a new piece of cloth on that old shirt, that, it's going to shrink just like the fabric did before, and it's going to tear it apart. Now your shirt looks terrible because it's got a bigger hole and a bigger rip. And so this is what Jesus is saying. is like something new is about to break through, and he gives one more illustration. This one we can't relate to as much because he talks about wine. Not because I, we're against drinking wines. I'm just checking, just looking, making eye contact. No, but because the, the way that wine was um, packaged back then was different. It was put in wine skins. And it was put in wine skins before it had fully fermented. And so as the wine began to ferment, it changed also the composition of the wine skins that it was a part of. Probably the closest we have to this is like boxed wine, you know, that has like the bag in it, but it's plastic, so it doesn't really, doesn't really work. So what Jesus is saying is you can't, you know, in a, in a wineskin that's already been, had fermented wine, you can't pour new wine in there because what happens is it starts to get brittle, it loses its elasticity, and that new wine will just rip it to shreds as it begins to ferment again. What is Jesus saying? 
Jesus is saying that the salvation that he's bringing cannot be mixed with the old religious systems of the past. The old ways to be right with God was to follow the rules, to follow the laws. And Jesus is saying those things are about to be fulfilled. They're about to be completed. Those things are no longer going to be necessary for you to know God. This is good news. So it's true, we cannot take Jesus and and make him fit into old religious ways of the past. But it's also true today that salvation through Jesus can't be mixed with anything else. It's Jesus alone. Whether it's the old religious fundamentalism or the neo kind of social fundamentalism, secular fundamentalism we have today, Jesus just will not work. He, he may, it may seem to fit. It may seem to sew on well initially, but eventually something's going to give. It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be the old ways. It's going to be either Jesus or the secular kind of social ideologies that have formed us up until that point. So what's happening here is that the ways of Jesus are starting to stand out. Now notice, again, who brings the question of fasting up to Jesus. Does anybody remember? Anybody remember who brings the question of fasting up? It's not the Pharisees. It's the people. Some people. Now, whenever somebody comes to me and says, some people have an issue with the way you dress, Andrew, on Sunday. Uh, who, what people? We know, some people. So what it, what's happening here is the culture. The culture that's been formed in this way is having an issue. It's not just the Pharisees. Now, we'll circle back to them in just a minute. It's important to note here before we move on that Jesus doesn't condemn fasting in general. He doesn't even condemn the extra fasting of the Pharisees. What he's trying to do in this interaction with the people is he's trying to communicate that the fulfillment of their religious practice is right in front of them. Like, here is God in the flesh. I am here. The the reason you fast, the reason you do these religious practices is to know God, to be right with God. I am here. I'm right in front of you. So he's not pushing back against the practices. What he's trying to show them is that he is there. And we still do this today. We still get busy in our lives with religious things, and we don't actually stop to listen to God's voice, to consider what he's calling us into. We check our religious checklist. I went to church. I read my Bible. I did my devotion. I prayed for those things. And we we get into this routine where our religion becomes stale. It becomes about what we're doing instead about what God has for us, his heart for us. So moving forward, there's two conflicts that Jesus then has after this event. And two conflicts over the fourth commandment. Does anybody know what the fourth commandment is of the ten? Okay, we're doing a series on the ten commandments next. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Are you fourth commandment, anybody? The Sabbath. Okay, good. Whew, somebody knows. Uh, the Sabbath. So let's look at this, this challenge that Jesus has with the Sabbath or with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. Uh, Picking up in verse 23, if you're following along. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick up some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, 
Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All right, so we'll pause right here because some of you didn't know what the fourth commandment was, and that's okay. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? What is the purpose of the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the seventh day. It's a Saturday. It's a time of rest. Now, this Sabbath command was given to the people of God in the context of having just been freed from slavery. And we are pretty certain that the Jewish people prior to that point had been working seven days a week. And so in the midst of this, their newfound freedom, God is basically saying, don't go back into that. Don't keep doing that. I want you to rest. But even more so, we can go back even further, and we see that the Sabbath is connected to the very beginning of creation, where on the seventh day of creation, God himself rested. Six days he worked, on the seventh day he rested. So the Sabbath is not to be confused as like this, this opportunity to be lazy um, or to just you know, stream Netflix every Saturday all day. The Sabbath is an the idea of the Sabbath is of rest, but it's of worship as well. It's a reminder that the things that God has provided for us are things that God has provided for us. That we can work and we should work, but ultimately it is God's providence that is at work, giving us everything that we need. So Sabbath rest is really important. Okay, so here's the here's the conflict. The Pharisees, who seem to now just be kind of popping up all over the place, like spying on Jesus, they're here again. And after having issues with Jesus uh, sharing a meal with sinners, now they're having an issue with Jesus and his disciples eating. Kind of weird, right? Connection, I don't know. So why is this? Why would they have a problem with Jesus and his disciples plucking some grain that was growing to feed themselves. Well, what they had done, remember how they go, okay, here's what God said. We're going to take it a little further to be really holy. What they had done is they had taken the idea of Sabbath rest and they had made it a rule instead of a blessing. They had said, okay, if we're not to work on the Sabbath, that means if you didn't make enough food for Sabbath on the day before, you're going to have to go without food because making food is working. They, they had ideas like if there was a, a catastrophe, say there's an earthquake and a house collapsed on a family and they were under the rubble, you couldn't pull them out until the next day because that's work. So they had taken something that was to be good and they had distorted it. They had made it a rule to follow instead of a blessing to receive. So, they're going after Jesus and his crew for eating. And I, and I love the first response that Jesus gives. These very religious people who should know the Bible very well. And he says, 
what's the fourth commandment? No, he didn't say that. That's you guys. I said that to you. Um, he said, do you not remember that David, when his companions were hungry, went in and got food for them? It was against the law, yes, but what's the greater law at play here? Life. So Jesus takes a dig at the religious folks. Like, y'all read the Bible? Come on. Well, the Torah, I guess it would be called then. So, so that's his first response. But then he gets to the heart of the matter. Essentially, he says, yo, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says this, also, just in case you're wondering, I made the Sabbath. (laughs) The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Again, he's already said he's a bridegroom. He's already said he can forgive sins. Here on the third time, he says, I am Lord over the Sabbath. I am God. Now, just a sidebar here. Uh, the Sabbath, for the Sabbath in the early church, the principle is still good today. Yesterday, Saturday, was the first Saturday our family's had in a long time where we didn't have something to do. And we felt it. We read books, we raked leaves, a little bit of work. We played games, we rested. It was good for us as a family to do that. The Sabbath, Sabbath rest is good. We have an opposite problem. Like I said earlier, where the, the Pharisees would, would try and take it to extreme of holiness, we go the other way in our culture today. And we go, ah, is one day enough? No, it's not. One day out of a month is not enough. Well, the, you know, our culture is wired to work you to death. It's a capitalistic culture. That's what we do. We work to make money. And we make money so that we can buy more stuff. This is the way our culture is wired. And so Sabbath is good. We don't want to knock that. But what we need to notice here is the way that Jesus' life is being recorded so far. Mark's gospel is giving it to us straight. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. And this is why people are following him. He is God. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And so after this interaction with the Sabbath, things begin to take a little bit darker tone with the culture, the religious leaders in Jesus. And we'll end with this last one. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them that were watching, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Which is better, to do good or to do evil? They literally couldn't answer the question. You know, something is wrong with your religious beliefs if you cannot answer that question. Jesus is trying to appeal to their hearts. 
and they can't respond. Well, they, they do respond, don't they? And when you don't respond, that's a response at times. When power structures are threatened, when beliefs are challenged, how will you respond? How will I respond? Man, I'd like to think that when I'm faced with the truth, that my heart will be soft enough and I'll be humble enough to receive the truth. But we know that's not how it is. Our hearts are messed up. Our hearts are broken. We will do whatever we can to hold on to power structures that make us feel good, to things that we feel like we can control. And when we realize we're not in control, we will fight to keep control. And so after being asked the question, Jesus cannot believe what he sees. He's both deeply angered and also saddened, distressed by their hearts. So here's Jesus trying to give them an opportunity to see the commands of God rightly, and they just can't do it. They just can't do it. Not only are they silent, but in their silence, their approach to Jesus now takes a dark turn. Look at this again. Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, who are the Herodians? Let me briefly explain that. They're basically a Jewish group that is very nationalistic. They're not so much religious like the Pharisees. What they have done is they have pledged allegiance to Rome, to the ways of Rome, to the preservation of Rome, to the success of Rome. And so what happens here, and pay attention, because this has happened throughout church history. When people that are in power religiously cannot get their way, in order to keep that power, they will sacrifice their faith and partner with politics. They will partner with ungodly movements in order to keep their own control. And that's what the Pharisees do. They plot with the Herodians to figure out a way to undo the influence of Jesus, ultimately to kill Jesus. Are you listening? Very dangerous. And I'll tell you what, it's one of the most disconcerting things I heard just recently was that in the last few years, people that claim faith in Christ that attend church on Sundays has gone down, while people who claim to be evangelicals has gone up. What does that say? What does that say about who we have gotten into bed with as a church in America? Oftentimes, we do it thinking that we're, doing, we're fighting for gospel purity and we're doing the opposite. We're bringing something into our faith that is not compatible with it. As somebody once said, when you mix religion and politics, you get politics every time. Not to say that we don't engage, that we don't pray, that we don't fight for good things in our culture. But if we depend on political movements to get us to places only God can get, then we ultimately find ourselves opposed to God. So in one moment, religious folks can't answer Jesus' question about life. And in the next moment, they plot to take his. Religion without Jesus is dead. In fact, it leads to death. And when Jesus isn't religious enough, people will turn to other things to accomplish their will. 
So in closing, here's what we see in this story that causes us to, to think about how we're following Jesus and what we're inviting people into. The number one thing that we see is following Jesus doesn't fit with man-made religion or philosophy. It just, it's not, comp- there's aspects of it that, that hey, may sync up, but ultimately it's like sewing on a, a new patch of, of cloth to an old t-shirt. It's Jesus and Jesus only. And for you and for me, we need to hold on to the, the promises of God as it relates to Jesus' work. Isaiah 43, before Jesus ever showed up, says this, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. And this is for our sin as well. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy, and people couldn't see it. So if you want to follow Jesus, be ready for a new thing in your life. A new thing in your life. A new identity, a new thing in your soul. Sometimes that means that Jesus is going to transform old things. So that doesn't mean uh, you can't be a Seahawks fan anymore, right? That that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the things in your life that you enjoy now, but it means that those things are now going to have a different viewpoint and have a different flavor to them. And then he is going to lead you into brand new things as well. This is the transforming work of Christ. So number one, we see following Jesus doesn't fit with man-made religion or philosophy. It is Jesus and Jesus only. Number two, Following Jesus means we pursue life over death. That was the question. In healing that man's hand, in feeding his disciples, is it life or death that you're after here? And Jesus has already made this clear. He's healing people. He's forgiving people of their sins. He's calling people to a life of purpose. And the religious leaders had a hard time following Jesus because they had created a type of religious policy that was tied into their identity. They couldn't let those things go. Following Jesus means we pursue the things of Jesus over any political policy, even personal policy that you may have, if it's at odds with the ways of Jesus. And then lastly, following Jesus means that you will clash, you will eventually clash with the systems and cultures of the world. Because they will not willingly submit to Jesus. They will not willingly give up their power. And so in your attempt to follow Jesus, you're going to butt up against them. What the ways of Jesus continue to do today is they continue to expose human systems as completely powerless for transformation. Whether it's man-made religions, whether it's politics or social movements, nothing has the power to transform our lives and societies like Jesus can. Because Jesus is the only one that can heal the heart. He gives us a new heart. And it's out of that that our lives and eventually our societies are changed. So it goes like this. Hearts are changed to be about a culture of life instead of death. And out of that life, the society then changes. Then the laws then change. But if you go the other way, it just is powerless to enact change. Jesus alone can change hearts. So today, as you follow Jesus, don't be surprised when folks notice that you're doing things differently. Instead, be ready to tell them about the hope and peace you have found in following Jesus' ways. And remember, in your own religious rhythms, 
When you fast or you take days to rest, you don't do it to earn God's favor. You do those things. We do those things as a response to the favor we've already received. Fasting and Sabbath rest remind us where our hope and trusts are placed. This morning, I want you to know that the same God who created the world and demonstrated in Jesus that he is still in charge, that he is still present, he is still providing all that we need. And it is only in him that we can find true Sabbath, true rest for our souls. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.